Doctors, this is KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I am delighted today to welcome to the Aerobology Show the one and only Muna Damluji, who has managed to make quite an impact on the Stanford campus. Marhaba, Muna. Marhaba. I should tell people some of your amazing achievements here. You are, of course, a cultural activist and scholar with expertise in the Middle East region. You are the director of the Merkaz Resource Center, and you are Associate Dean of Diversity and Community Engagement at Stanford, and that is just some of the things that you do. Uh, welcome to uh, KZSU. Thank you for having me. And uh, this is your first time here, I hear. It is. <laughs> exciting to be here. When, how long have you been at Stanford? Uh, I've been here since September of uh 2015, so I'm a newbie. You're a newbie in so many ways, but then you've also, uh, you have a PhD from um, UC Berkeley, and uh, you've also, uh, you're a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in Asian and Islamic visual culture. You bring all this with you to the Marcas. How has your time there been so far? Oh, it's been amazing. The Marcas uh, is a beautiful space on campus, right? Central um, in the Nidery building, um, just above the Nidery Theater in El Centro, uh, Chicano y Latino. And, uh, you know, the space existed when I came to campus, and I have basically had the pleasure of coming in in the position of director and meeting all the different uh, students and faculty and staff who've been involved in the making of the center. And there's already so much momentum, so I feel like I'm stepping in um, and really being able to, uh, you know, facilitate and lead and, and sort of... Uh Absolutely. And you've actually um, been able to um, organize events at the center that uh, focus and um, sort of center on uh, issues that I think are of great importance at this time, especially in terms of the Muslim world and, uh, you know, um, Muslim culture, Islamic culture, things like that. Um, how much of your time is devoted to organizing these events? Yeah, in this first year, um, a lot of what we've been focusing on is uh, building a staff, both a professional and a student staff at the Marcas, who can support these kinds of programs. The ideas come, um, I would say, 90% from our students. And so we have the Muslim Student Union, the Arab um, Student Association at Stanford, Pakistanis at Stanford, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine. They're all affiliated with the Marcas, and they come with their ideas. Um, they've organized panels on Islamophobia on the experiences of activism around questions of Palestine um, and around uh, sort of Arab and Muslim identities. So all these topics that are inc incredibly important for us to have a, a deeper, nuanced understanding of. And they've offered first-person points of view. So in terms of my time, um, it's really working with the students to make sure that they um, have everything they need in terms of um, organizational, um, the facilities. And again, we have this beautiful space and it allows for very intimate conversations. Right, right. Very colorful space, I should say. Yes, it's beautiful. And, uh, <laughs> and, and some of the things that you're organizing this quarter are, for example, I know on Thursdays, you have, uh, what are we calling it now, the Arabic hour or something? Yes, we yeah. have the Arabic table. Um, and uh, one of our... Um, 
uh, our wonderful staff in the uh, Arabic department. Um, Professor Thuraya Bomahdi. Yeah, sorry, Thuraya yeah, Bomahdi. Yeah, she's, yes. she's wonderful and she comes and she really like brings the space alive and we get people, um, students and community members and staff from, and graduate students and their, their partners um, come together and bring, it's, it's, it's like a beautiful <laughs> uh, uh, buffet of dialects. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> from across the Middle East. So, so Mona, anybody is uh, is welcome to attend those? Um, yeah, they're uh, completely open. Um, uh, so the, the events that we have that are open to anybody in the in Stanford community. And beyond or just? And beyond, yeah. So we have certain events that are structured more specifically for students, but otherwise the ones that we advertise in our newsletter um, are generally open to the wider community as well. So we have afternoon chai nice. at 4 o'clock on Tuesdays. And wow. I hope everyone will come at some point. Stop by. We make a delicious masala chai and elechi chai. Um, and we have always treats out. And it's a great chance to engage with students wow. um, and, and just see the space for yourself. There's not really a lot of programming that goes on there. And then um, the Arabic table is, is also open, as you said, on around Thursdays. noon on Thursdays. Thursdays. Yeah. I think it's about noon to one, yes. let's say, with Professor Boumahdi. And that's for people who want to practice their Arabic, perhaps just he listen to Arabic being spoken. It's not specifically like for a level of Arabic, uh, yep. Mona, right? It's open to anybody with any kind of proficiency level in exactly. the language. Yeah, wonderful, exactly. wonderful. And then, of course, the Marcas has organized several events on uh, in their space. I remember one uh, uh, that was uh, kind of focusing, I think, uh, was it the, the Marcas uh, that focused on uh, hijabi, uh, you know, women? That was actually a collaboration between one of our student uh, orgs, the the Muslim Student Union, MSU, and the Women's Center. Right. So one of the things we get to do as one of the community centers and resource centers on campus is work and collaborate with the other amazing uh, resource and community centers that we have. So there's the Women's Center, the LGBT Center, uh, downstairs El Centro Chicano y Latino, the Black House, the Asian American Activity Center, the Native American Cultural Center. So Stanford is blessed. It's just so rich with all these amazing centers. Right, right. And all of them have their own programming activity, and there's a lot of opportunities to collaborate. Come and, together. And, and how appropriate that the name of your space is Marcas, <laughs> which of course in Arabic means uh, center. We're the, the cen center. We're the center center. Yeah, the center <laughs> of the center. Um, Mona, can you tell us a little bit about your background before you came to, to Stanford in terms of your academic training and such? Yes. Um, I was uh, at UC Berkeley, just our neighbor to the north. And uh, that's where I did my master's and my PhD. And I did it in um, architecture. Um, and I also, I sort of had a very interdisciplinary approach that looked at visual culture more broadly on uh, the built environment. So I was interested in urban studies, anthropology, as well as also visual and film studies. So a lot of the work I did in addition to my research was um, focused on curating um, exhibitions that sort of featured work from the Middle East or by uh, Middle Eastern American, Arab American, Muslim American artists to yeah. really to showcase that work that's not really necessarily as accessible. And I think universities are amazing places to bring that work. So and Absolutely. then I continued that in my postdoc when I was at um, uh, Wheaton College, which is in Massachusetts, and I did some work at Brown as well. Right, because you were a visiting professor there at, at Wheaton. I uh, was actually, I was at, the, that's where I was the Mellon uh, postdoc in visual uh, culture, and I also got to um, work at Brown University as a, as a, uh, 
to do an exhibition and uh, uh, a really wonderful seminar on uh, comic books from wow. the Arab world. Comic books from the Arab <laughs> world. I mean, I, 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 would, uh, I think my, our listeners will hear this. I want to know just a little bit more. <laughs> There's uh, a lot more. <laughs> if you look um, at ArabComicsExhibit.org, you can see um, a video uh, of the exhibit and some images from it, some more wow. information about it. And we're hoping with the energy of some students to bring it to Stanford campus. It's a traveling exhibit, so it will be at University of Washington in Seattle. It will be at UC Berkeley, and we hope it will come to Stanford soon. Yeah, so I mean, you know, from a layman's point of view, are we talking here about what superheroes from the Arab world We're in talking, the comic forms? We or? are. We're talking. <laughs> so uh, just a little bit about the exhibit. I mean, it's it was really, it's uh, something I got to do with my brother, Nadim, who is wow. a, a scholar of comic books, actually, nice. um, from the Middle East, and, and also he, he calls himself uh, a Tintinologist, so wow. following uh, the, the footsteps of, of Tintin. So his research is a post-colonial study of comic books throughout the Middle East and Asia. Um, so we really focus on Arabic language uh, comics and interrogating this idea of like, is there anything Arab about the comic book genre? Mm. Um, and the most amazing thing is exposing, uncovering the uh, almost century-long history of Arabic comic book production from the region, which even precedes a lot of the popularity of comic books in the U.S. Really? And Europe. I mean, it's not very well known, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the first one was in uh, 1921. Wow. I love how you unearth these things because, <laughs> you know, I think people think of it as a purely Western genre. Exactly. That it originated in the West and then sort of was uh, imitated in the Arab world. Uh, exactly. Or just translated sometimes. So we look at the early comic book history and then the, the second part is looking at the translation and the question of translation. So we look at... Nabil Fauzi, who was the Clark Kent of um, Lebanon. Oh, wow. Um, and there's all these interesting things. It's not just that the comic books are translated very directly, that they were changed. So there was a mustache put on oh, Superman. Really? Very oh, wow. and, so, and his name was changed. <laughs> and this is just one example. I mean, Tintin obviously has been translated into many languages, including Arabic. Um, but we look at um, Superman, Batman, you know, all these. these and so epic... Nabid Fauzi is the Arabic name for Clark Kent? Ah. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. Because, I mean, I guess... Superman. Superman. And, then, and then you, you can't even say, like, you know, Clark Kent. I mean, it would be Clark Kuntu, I was. <laughs> <laughs> or something, uh, and and, and Muna, that's only one of the of the amazing uh, projects and courses that you have taught uh, in your career. I mean, I'm looking here at some uh, of your uh, courses, ranging from cinema and the city to uh, uh, mediating Islam to cities of the Middle East, and so many other uh, courses. Uh, too many to mention. Is there sort of a common framework for these courses? Is there a common goal or a specific audience? in mind yeah like as I said my research was uh, during my graduate um, studies really took on this interdisciplinary uh, dimension and I started to see um, how knowledge is produced about the Middle East in particular but we'd let's say more broadly other places so we can think about the global south more broadly so how we produce knowledge about those places um, through images and through uh, a lot of what we get in the media um, it's something I've been thinking about my since since I was in college or even earlier and really starting to think about how my own self-identity as an Arab American was shaped through Hollywood movies and through my own exposure to what I thought an Arab was uh, or the popular <laughs> imagination of Arabs, right, which we know is, is um, pretty inaccurate. I think so the work of Jack Shaheen and others um, who right. documented this. But so as I started to get exposed to those ideas, my trajectory has basically been to find the many different ways, the sort of multimedia, uh, um, and and uh, 
sort of different ways that we can begin to unpack how how we know what we know uh, and how we and how that affects how we operate in the world, like the work that images do. And when I talk about images, it can be something in the built environment. So the images of cities, the way we interact with cities. Cinema in the city is an example where, you know, we often don't get to travel to many places around the globe, but we we feel like we know these places because movies take us there. So the the power of um, of really and as as media changes, and you know, now we're in the digital age, we really need to think about. Um, very critically, and I think every person, and especially every college student, should be equipped with um, the ability to really think through very carefully how they uh, interpret images, how they right. how they assume right. them are, truth. Are, are, you're not teaching any courses at Stanford at not the yet. moment. Yeah. I hope to. Uh, are you going to continue to teach courses at uh, Wheaton College? No, Wheaton College is actually all the way in Mass. It's not the Wheaton <laughs> that was having some controversy recently. Oh, okay. They get confused a lot. <laughs> um, no, this one's a small, small liberal arts college that had this amazing postdoc opportunity for me um, in visual culture at a, for two years uh, as a fellow. And so I'm now based in the Bay Area, and I hope to be able to, to teach courses um, definitely in the future at Stanford. But in the meantime, I'm trying to bring in into my role and into sort of the, the life of the center and, and sort of um, through programming, hopefully, uh, a lot of a lot of what I've what I've taught about and and taking any opportunity I can to really um, also do lectures or to right. do talks and things like that. Right. You're also affiliated with the Arab Film Festival, I yes, hear. The wonderful AFF. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship? Oh gosh, this is something that really for me was uh, for me the break from all the academic work I was doing, but so closely tied to it um, while I was at Berkeley. So I, you know, I was basically a, a very uh, and I still am someone who really admires the festival for the important mission that they have and the work that they do to really to bring to life stories that we don't get to hear otherwise or see or engage with um, from the Arab world. And again, the Arab world is not restricted to the Middle East. We know um, there's filmmakers from the U.S., from um, Europe, who are also Africa, who are who are part of the festival. Right. So for me, again, tying it back to uh, the question of education and, and really young people, um, I, I took on the role as uh, the uh, educational outreach coordinator. So I organized a festival for schools, nice. um, which is their wonderful program that brings in high school and middle school students and college students, community college students, to uh, see free screenings of the films. Right. And we've also, in the past, uh, we should say hello to Serge Bakalian, of course. Yes. Um, and to Dina Nasla. They're doing an amazing job with the Arab Film And I, I have a, a premature announcement, but we are working with AFF to bring their shorts program, um, which is about five amazing short films. Oh, I don't wow. know if you've seen this. Uh, amazing short film program. They've done it in Oakland. That's where I got to see it um, at the at the new Parkway. Uh, and we're going to bring it to campus hopefully in April. In April. Nice. Yeah. Because in the past, uh, you know, Serge and I have brought uh, uh, movies here to yes. uh, as part of the AFF at Stanford. Yes. They've tended to be, you know, long films. I like the idea of bringing in shorts. Yeah. And certainly we at uh, the Arabology Show are with you. Yep. In so terms we will of be collaborating. <laughs> yes, yes. And a big hello to, uh, to Serge again. Um, Muna, let me turn a little bit to your uh, sort of uh, personal background. Now, you are an Arab American. I am. You were born in the States. I was. And uh, to a sort of a, could I say, bicultural background, <laughs> because you're Arab both ways, but you are, what, half Iraqi? And half Lebanese. And half Lebanese. And so you, which which uh, parent is which? They're both half of each. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're both half Iraqi, half Lebanese, actually. How nice. And Very unusual, but pretty cool. <laughs> 
and they, they, they met uh, in, in the States? They or? met in Baghdad. Um, they both grew up in Iraq, and um, they that's where they met. Then, then actually, when they left, uh, we came to the States. A lot of my family immigrated just in the, the next five, ten years. So um, by the time... Um, uh, things got really uh, difficult under the sanctions in mm-hmm. Iraq. Right. Um, most of my family was gone, and my grandparents left at the start of the first Gulf War. Um, they didn't realize that how long they were leaving for. Sure. They left um, thinking it was just very short term, and then they never went back. Wow. So I've I've been been to Baghdad once when I was two years old, but unfortunately... You don't know. Well, uh, and what about the Lebanese part? So Lebanon is really, for me, um, it's very important to me. It's really a home for me. Uh, I love I love that feeling of flying in, <laughs> landing in the Rafikari airport. I mean, just as you land, my heart just gets really full. Um, I'm always so excited to, to, see, to see Lebanon, despite all of its issues and and the difficulties of, of, of living there, really, I think um, it's still it's a place that just holds a very special place in my heart. So we moved um, from uh, California, where I grew up. We actually moved to Lebanon um, as a family when I was oh, 16. Oh, you did? Oh, so you lived. You actually I went to ACS. Lived in, yep. Wow. I went wow. to ACS Beirut for two years, <laughs> finished my high school there, um, and then came back to the States for college. But I, since then, have returned again and again. I've made friendships in Lebanon, and I've met family there I didn't I wasn't close to before. So it's been, it's just opened up a whole new part of who I am when right. I got to go. Well, I've got to ask you as a language lecturer here, somebody <laughs> who deals with, you know, many Arab American students who uh, decide maybe in their college years to sort of go back and uh, master the Arabic language. Mm. They've heard it at home. Mm. Um, they're very familiar with the colloquial, exactly. but they've got sort of a difficult relationship with the fusha, which tends to intim- intimidate oh, yeah. them initially. But that, of course, <laughs> is the language of uh, books and of the media. And so there's no way to, you know, read literature if you don't know that. What is your relationship with the Arabic language so far? And what uh, what is your uh, outlook on the future? I mean, it is uh, just such a beautiful language and it is so complicated my relationship with yeah. with Arabic because sure. I grew up in a household where uh, my parents and a lot of my family spoke Iraqi mm. and so for me I you know I also grew up in a time when um, in terms of identity formation the first Gulf War was going on and the as I said the image of Arabs and Arabic in the Middle East I mean it wasn't what we see now exactly but it was extremely negative and extremely ridiculed um, so uh, I did everything I could when I was young to actually hide the fact that I was Arab. And, you know, people would ask me, oh, what are you? Oh, your last name. It's very interesting. Is that Italian? You know, and I kind of yeah, just... Damluji. Yeah. That's very Italian, yeah. You know, I grew up in, in Southern California, and I really, I, I think that... Um, it, it was very formative for me, and so it wasn't really until we moved when we moved to Beirut that, for the first time, I saw really the beauty of. Uh, I, I, I it was the first time I really uh, wished that I was uh, an Arabic speaker because for me that's. <laughs> well, 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 but you are. I mean, even even with your command of the colloquial, you know, you and I often uh, speak in yeah. colloquial. I, try- the, I mean, at the time I was sixteen, and I had my parents had been sending me to Saturday school to <laughs> to do my <laughs> my sort of rote learning, and uh, I resisted. And so, unfortunately, I mean, this is one of the things that when I talk to young people, especially young Arab Americans or anyone who's interested, not, not necessarily Arab American, any young person who is in, who 
has a connection, a family connection, heritage connection to language, right. to foster that when they're young and to be proud of it and to not um, feel like uh, they need to resist being different because actually that's just so beautiful. Yeah. Um, did, did your parents speak, uh, you know, colloquial Arabic in the, in the house? They did. They spoke Iraqi. And, uh, you know, I so till this day I can really like understand Iraqi Arabic but I don't have the the really the language um, in terms of, of recalling and sure. speaking myself. But comprehension is 50% of it. So and then Fosha and Lebanese I learned in high school in Beirut and had amazing teachers. So are amazing. you able to, to sort of switch dialects? <laughs> Meaning like, you know, how, how would we say moon in uh, Lebanese? Or right, Omar versus Qamar. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's actually what I try to teach my students every day is, you know, you, you got to learn the Fosha, which would be Qamar, and I think that's closest to uh, to. Iraqi, mm-hmm. and then sort of change the Qaf exactly. to an Alif, and then that becomes Lebanese Amar. Exactly. But if you don't know the origin of the word, it's very hard to, to learn it in colloquial, unless, like you, you learn through listening at, yes. uh, in your home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've, um, well, I have a funny story about the Qamar thing. So I yeah, have, please. my cousin's name is Amar. Ooh. Okay, so she lives in Beirut, or she, you know, grew up in Beirut, and her name is written with a Q, Qamar in English. Uh-huh. And so, and we call her Amar. And so for me, that was a very early lesson. <laughs> where did you where'd the, the come from? Right, right. So I right. just learned that one quickly and that stuck. So that's helped me, I think, a lot. Just that, that easy lesson. Well, one of the funny ones we had in class today, in fact, since we're talking about this, is, you know, the word for pen mm. in Arabic alam. with alam. And so alam, which is Really, qalam yes. is another one of those cues that get, um, you know, omitted in the uh, colloquial. Uh, alam in fusha also means pain. Mm-hmm. So I had a student telling me, you know, hal andaka alam. Mm-hmm. They're trying to use colloquial with me, but we're used to speaking fusha. So I was like, why is this kid asking me if I have pain? Mm-hmm. And apparently they were just asking me if I had pen. <laughs> so there you go, qalam versus alam. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so, I mean, I have one of the things things that I uh, motivates me to, to continue my Arabic learning is just the humor in the language, the mm-hmm. ability to, I mean, because it's there's such beautiful wordplay in it. I mean, there's so many jokes I want to get right, right. <laughs> and I want to understand. And a lot of them, my father tells at the table, and a lot of them rely on these sort of uh, subtle nuances and sort of the yeah. different, you know, the different homonyms and things like that. So uh, I think there's, there's just endless yeah, and it, joy it, to be derived from Indeed. I mean, I, so, so many times when we say an Arabic joke and my American friends are going to go, what was that about? And I go, it can be translated. Yeah, that's, you know. And, and they feel so shut out and isolated. You know, like, that was sorry. the number one thing that happened at our dinner table. What it, why is everyone laughing? Oh, you can't translate. So. Right, you can't translate. And that's that. You know. <laughs> Go learn Arabic. <laughs> so, um, Muna, one of the things uh, that is happening on campus on Wednesday, February 3rd, that's coming up from 12 p.m. until 1.30 p.m., is a talk by Muna Damluji uh, uh, called Baghdad's Deep Dilemma, Sectarianism and Urban Segregation Under Occupation. Yeah. This is uh, a topic that you are interested in. You'll be speaking about on uh, February 3rd. What can you tell us about the talk? So the talk is based on research I did um, during my master's um, uh, degree at at, uh, Berkeley. And basically the question I had was, 
you know, this city, I mean, from a personal standpoint, okay, there's this city of Baghdad, and uh, the one thing that I know is that it was never talked about in terms of um, this neighborhood is Sunni, this neighborhood is Shia. This is something right. that is, for anyone who knows the city, understands that this is a relatively new phenomenon, and yet... And it a is, very disturbing one, we it's should very say. disturbing, and I mean, it has been the result of so much um, violence, particularly from 2006 and until today, uh, sectarian-based violence, right, based on uh, sectarian identity or presumed sectarian difference. So one of the things that I did was I sort of, uh, I went through all the documentation that there was of, of this idea of the change of the city, the transformation from a city that was not primarily organized um, and life in the city was not primarily organized around sectarian identity, actually how it was transformed and what are the sort of the political dimensions of that and then what were on the ground in terms of the physical transformations of the city um, that today you actually have a city where there are physical barriers, there are walls that separate right. different neighborhoods. In fact, don't you call them Bremer walls? Am I, am that's I, not uh, my term. That's <laughs> actually a, that is a colloquial local term that they began to be referred to as Bremer walls. And this is one of the main arguments I make is that actually what happened between um, 2004 and, and uh, in 2006 in terms of the, the rewriting of the Constitution um, and, and the entire approach that Paul, Paul Bremer took as um, the, the head of the CPA, which was appointed by Bush. It was had nothing to do with being any kind of democratic process. Um, it was a direct appointment. Um, the decisions that he made around debathification um, and different policies that he enacted actually um, created a foundation for a sectarian uh, quota system and basis for the government in Iraq that continues until today. Mm -hmm. And that what we see happening in the city, again, these images we get, the physical manifestations, like the the, the blast walls that separate Sunni from Shia, which gives us this image of the sort of, you know, primordial enemies um, that need to be physically separated, the sort of image of like barbarism, right. um, that that all has its roots actually in the political top-down actions that were taken from, from 2003, 2004. So I, I try and really draw out that argument. Because you, you didn't used to hear, you know, he was he's Sunni, he's Shia, it's a Shia neighborhood and Sunni neighborhood. I mean, no, and in fact, not, uh, even intermarrying, you know, there, I mean... The example that always comes to mind is, you know, there are people who's part of their family is Sunni, part of their family is Shia. In my case, part of my family is Christian, part of my family is is Muslim. Right. Um, and and when you're in those in-between identities and then suddenly the world starts operating presumably according to rules that are black and white, where do you fit? Where do you go? You have to make decisions. You have to make choices. Or if you're married to someone who's of an opposite sector, opposite religion from you, well, when all of a sudden you're you're told you can't live in the same place right. and we see this in, in Palestine and, and we should tell our listeners you know that of course Sunnis and Shah are both Muslims so I mean yeah. it's just like we've got Absolutely. this uh, this uh, sectarianism within what used to just be called Muslim and that right there you know I mean I, I do uh, want to acknowledge there are there are differences in how faith is practiced and in terms of the religion um, and those have depending on the different contexts like uh, there's different manifestations of that in society and culture, but in terms of a political identity and one that determines your ability to live or or uh, or die in a place like Baghdad, before 2003, that didn't exist. Right. 
Right. And I think that's what we need to emphasize here is, you know, we will watch the mainstream uh, American uh, news and media and they almost make them sound like they're, they're that this oppositional relationship between them has always been there and mm-hmm. that somehow, you know, these are real Muslims opposed to what fake Muslims. I don't know what, what they're trying to do. Uh, depends on the twist they're trying to put on, on the uh, relationship. Certainly mm-hmm. Sunnis and Shias are both uh, Muslims. They read the Quran. They, yeah. uh, you know, they pray five times a day, exactly. etc. Uh, and and one more thing about your presentation is that uh, you're actually going to be uh, concentrating on the years 2006 and 2007 yeah. in terms of examining uh, the recent public dissent on the streets of Baghdad. Uh, you're doing that uh, sort of specifically with what goal in mind? So one of the things that happened this last summer was um, we suddenly saw this reemergence of uh, a kind of uh, protest um, in in cities across the Middle East. So you had in, for example, in Beirut, there were the the large protests against um, the trash, right. which again w- was a kind of uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> unbelievably apt metaphor. Or, or hashtag you stink. And so the 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 garbage problem in Lebanon, which had gotten completely out of control, and and I, I honestly, I don't even know if it's it's been resolved or close to resolved. It, more to the point, it was a sign of the dysfunction of the the system of government, and so it became right. an opportunity. There was a lot of meaning to the, that kind of protest. At the same time, in Baghdad, there were protests around um, electricity cuts, and I think that it was also um, seen as an uh, a, a protest against the dysfunction of the sectarian government. And so, there's actually interesting parallels in, in some ways. Um, they're very different contexts politically, but I think in in terms of history. But um, between the sort of what happened in the summer. So I basically use that as a starting point and then go back to 2006, 2007 to understand, again, this transition from what was the political, the politicization of sectarian identity. So making them into political categories that had quota quotas in government in terms of representation to a transformation of the city, the streets, the way that people can move through the city, how, you know, the checkpoints, um, just the way that people navigate and live in the city by 2007 was totally different. And this was also the period of the most violence. So there was a lot of the role of um, different uh, militias and and different um, uh, security forces in Iraq during this period had everything to do with driving people out of neighborhoods and internal displacement, as well as creating the refugee crisis um, that, that still until today really is, is sure. one of our Fascinating. largest problems. In fact, if you want to hear more about this, uh, uh, you are welcome to go to uh, Mona Damluji's talk, which will be on Wednesday, February 3rd, from 12 to 1.30 p.m. It's going to be at Encina Hall. And uh, I guess you should RSVP if you want to go. Yes. This is brought to you by CDDRL. We should say hello to Hisham uh, Salam over there. Yes. And uh, the Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies, as well as, of course, the Merkaz Resource Center, whose director I have been speaking with for the past 30 minutes. The time has certainly flown by with you, Munadam Luji. You. Uh, you are doing so much and uh, you're managing to do it with such grace and such an amazing uh, sort of um, uh, zest for life. Uh, and it's contagious, Muna. We, we love coming to the Merkaz. I know it's sort of like a safe space for <laughs> many <laughs> of us who, who want to sort of escape the, 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 the what do you say, bitter realities that we're, <laughs> we're witnessing. Thank you for opening the 
Merkel's doors to everybody. Thank you for everything you are doing. And uh, please stay in touch with us here at the Herbology Show. Uh, We are always happy to help you advertise events, uh, let people know, and uh, come back every once in a while and let us know what is new with Muna Lemluji. I would love to. Thank you so much. Shukran Habibti. And uh, we'll be right back uh, right here at the Herbology Show coming to you from KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm your DJ Ramsey. It's a pleasure to be with you.